0: Of scripture this morning. Moving into 2 Timothy today, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, and love, and self-control. Thank you. You May be seated.
1: Now, just so y'all know, it's eleven oh seven. So if you look up and I'm preaching past noon, it's not my fault. So we all know that. Um, like, uh, We'll mention there, moving into 2 Timothy this morning, uh, the third of the three pastoral epistles that we've been focusing on, we looked at 1 Timothy and then Titus, and now we move into 2 Timothy, and this book is very special to me. Um, My earliest discipleship memories revolve around this book. I learned how to study the Bible through this book first. Um, I've used this book in foreign mission work. I've had men, men by the name of Names of Steve Harden, Tim Miller, Jim White, Herb Hodges, and others use this book to sharpen me directly. And I've used this book to sharpen other men and women as well. Josh Rollins, and Turk Bailey, and Brian Atkins and many others. This book is about a man and his disciple. And that man calling on that disciple to carry the gospel ministry from one generation to the next, ensuring that it will be so throughout history to the ends of the earth until the end of time. And I'm excited to be in this book with you folks now, this lovely group of people we call Providence Bible Church. Um, So I'm excited about this. I'm excited to be... um, in this book, we make these memories in this book with you all, after this book, having shaped me for twenty almost twenty five years now directly um, <clears throat> just a brief overview of of the book itself um, Paul, in this letter, is writing from a prison in Rome mamertine mamertine m a m e r t i n e prison. Here's a little picture, a little artist rendering of what that prison would have looked like. Now, that up top, that's the administrative area. That's where the soldiers hung out. If you see that hole in the floor, they dropped guys down into the prison, which was actually a pit in the ground, okay? And a lot of times they'd chain them together or to something or whatever. Here is a uh, current picture of what that prison looks like. You can tour it if you go to Rome, um, And you see the hole in the ceiling there. That's where they dropped men down, into this pit that was Mamertine Prison. And Mamertine was uh, a notorious prison. The worst criminals went there. The worst offenders sat in that pit and awaited their execution. Mamertine was a step toward execution. You didn't get out of Mamertine, generally. They were going to kill you. And this is where Paul is writing this letter from. Now, this is not an artist's depiction. This is the place. And I want you to get into your head, if you can, Paul sitting in, in this. And I'm sure he wasn't the only one there. There were other sweaty, smelly, nasty, notorious men. I um, Don't know if they put women there or not. I'm not sure. I didn't get into that uh, research. But this is where Paul wrote this letter from, and he is literally literally about to lose his head they're they 're setting him up for execution to cut his head off because he won 't shut up about this jesus guy he won 't be quiet he won 't let the Jews tell him to sit down and be quiet He's, He continues to travel and and we find him here first Timothy he had written um, he was, said he was traveling around. He may have written it from his first imprisonment, uh, which was house arrest, which was chained to a Roman guard in a house somewhere. Um, and some time's gone by since then. Um, and he's writing this, what would be his last letter from this hole in the ground. And who's he write to? He writes to Timothy. Timothy, his companion for some 15 years now in the gospel ministry, and he's trying to pour into Timothy all the encouragement, all the instruction that he can in these four what we call chapters in this brief letter. And in the words of Alistair Begg, he's passing this most important gospel baton to Timothy, his friend his son in the faith, his disciple, this faithful man, Timothy. And Paul is saying, I am about to be poured out as a drink offering. We'll get to that later in the letter. And so Paul is pouring himself, his teaching, his hope, the very gospel itself into Timothy. Preparing Timothy to carry the torch to the next generations. And note the plural there. So this is a very somber letter. This is a very serious letter. What we saw in 1 Timothy was kind of how the church relates to the church, within the church. What we saw in Titus was how the church can really reach out with good works into the world. And what we see here in 2 Timothy is one man reaching out to one other man. A discipler reaching out to his disciple. One-on-one, intimate personal relationship and it is really sad and it's really powerful and it's really beautiful and I hope that we can plumb the depths of it over these next several weeks and we are going to take our time a little bit more through Second Timothy we kind of ran through Titus and that was on purpose uh, we're going to take our time here in Second Timothy and we're going to really engage what's going on here and again excited to be doing this with this group of people um, and engaging this letter, hopefully, corporately and individually. So, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. As is Paul's regular practice, he introduces himself, including his credentials as an apostle, here at the very forefront, the very beginning of the letter, his name, Paul, means small or little, and that's his Greco-Roman name. We talked about that back in 1 Timothy as well, with his Hebrew-slash-Jewish name being Saul. Saul means desired or desirable. And he says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Now that's miscard, card, right? And again, as is so common in Paul's letters, he says, he identifies himself as an apostle. And probably most of y'all have heard this 28 times, but let's make it 29. The word for apostle is apostolos, and it means one who is sent. Paul identifies himself as a sent person, a sent one. Someone sent Paul. Who was it? That sent Paul. He says he's an apostle, a sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is Jesus's apostle. Jesus sent Paul. That happened back in Acts 9 when Saul was knocked off his horse by the risen Christ who had before that time ascended into heaven but appeared here to Paul, Saul, on Saul's way to Damascus. And he was headed to Damascus, Saul was, to arrest followers of the way, meaning people who had followed Jesus and his teachings. He was an opponent. He was a fierce opponent of this new faith that they were calling the way. And upon appearing appearing to Saul, Paul, we see this in Acts chapter 9, Verses 4 to 6. I don't know if I've got that in there. I don't. I didn't put that in Let me just read them. And falling to the ground, he, Saul, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Later, this same Jesus appears to a man named Ananias whom he tells to go to Saul. So Ananias was kind of an apostle to Saul. Jesus sends him to Saul in order to pray for him to regain his sight because he was blinded in that interaction with Jesus on the road. In his instructions to Ananias, Jesus says this about Saul in Acts chapter 9, 11-16. And the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about how this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, now listen to how he identifies Saul here. Go... For he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And there's your apostolic commissioning of Paul. Jesus says he's going to carry my name and he's going to suffer. Can we skip that suffering part, Jesus? No. No, we can't. And so we see from his very calling that Paul was to be sent. He was an apostle. Having seen the risen Christ, he was then sent out by Jesus to carry Jesus' name and message wherever he would be sent. And, like we saw in verse 16, he was also called to suffer. How much he must suffer for the sake of my name, the name that I'm sending him out for the purpose of carrying. And that carrying of the message, that carrying of the name of Jesus and that suffering is all about to come to an end. As Paul writes his letter to Timothy, he sits down with parchment. And I don't know if he's dictating this or if he's writing it himself. And he says, I need to get a letter to Timothy. The apostle of Christ Jesus who was called, who labored and suffered according to the plan and the will of God has reached the end of his earthly life. But look at how he ends his introduction back in 2 Timothy 1.1. He's looking death face to face. He says he and his apostleship, this, his life, his being sent, his imprisonment, his imminent death are all according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what, Paul is not worried about dying. Paul's not worried about his time on earth and his body being over. He's not worried about possibly coming to a final end of this earthly life. No, he's looking through death to life eternal and life everlasting, that life that is in Christ Jesus. And so the apostle introduces himself as one sent by Christ according to God's plan with all being held in the very life of Christ, which is the life that overcame death through resurrection power. Yes, Paul's earthly life is about to end, but he knows the truth of those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus had said in John 11, 25, and 26, the chapter where he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus' words at that time was, do you believe this? And Paul says, yes, I do believe this. As in, I face death as an apostle sent by Christ to carry the name of Christ and to suffer in his name, I believe that it is all summed up and the life that is mine is in Christ Jesus. Now, my one question here in, in verse 1, why in the world would Paul identify himself to Timothy as an apostle? Like, Timothy didn't know that? He's about to charge Timothy with some really heavy, hard things. Paul, who was sent to suffer, is going to tell Timothy, you're going to suffer too. And I need you to know, Timothy, that these aren't my words. This is not my preference. This is not me hoping you make it through. These are the very words of God that I'm carrying, and that I'm giving to you. And Paul did not know, I don't think, that his letter would be preserved and written in Holy Scripture so that it was literally the words of God. But he did say with assurance to Timothy, as I am about to expire and as I am calling you to be a good soldier and suffer for Christ, these are the very words of God, Timothy. And if Timothy doesn't know that, he's not going to make it. And if we don't know that, we're not going to make it. So we need to know that these words are God's words spoken by God's sent one in the name of Jesus Christ. So he identifies himself even to his closest personal companion as an apostle. So who is he writing to? 2 Timothy 1, two To Timothy, my beloved child, grace. Mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is writing 2 Timothy to Timothy. (laughs) Sorry if that's anticlimactic. Timothy's name means God-honorer or honoring God. We first meet him in Acts 16 as Paul's on his second missionary journey heading back through Derby and Lystra. Acts there says that Timothy was well spoken of by the people in the church there, the church that had been established on Paul's first missionary journey. And here on his second he comes back there and so Timothy is well spoken of by the people there and Paul wants to take him along with him on his journey. And how much did Timothy want to go? Well, it says that Paul circumcised Timothy to, so that he could take him with him. And that's some commitment there. So say what you want about Timothy and being timid. Come on. Okay, Paul, let's do this if that's what it takes. Um, so, so that journeying with Paul would start this association that's lasted until this last stage of Paul's earthly life. And we'll see later on in the book that almost everybody else had either been sent out by Paul or had deserted Paul But not Timothy. Timothy had been sent, but Paul's calling him to him now here at the end. And obviously from the text here, Paul holds Timothy close to his heart. He calls Timothy, my beloved child. And we know that doesn't mean that Paul was Timothy's biological child because Acts tells us that Timothy's father was a Greek man who was not Paul. And the fact that he needed to circumcise him shows that his father had been Greek as well. They didn't observe that ritual. So in calling Timothy his beloved child, Paul is making a spiritual reference. Timothy is his child in the faith. In 1 Corinthians 4.17 it says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Um, So with with calling him his beloved and his faithful child in the Lord, he's identifying this parent-child relationship That is spiritual discipleship. There is a fathering. There is a teaching. There is a leading type of relationship when we're talking about being and making disciples. Paul was Timothy's spiritual child. His child in the faith. His child in the Lord. Paul had taken him to raise in his faith like a father serving, leading, loving, and nurturing Timothy. And here in this last letter to his beloved child, Paul extends grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, this is very Paul-ish. He uses this phrase or these words as a phrase together over and over and over again to wish his hearers or his readers well. It's the best he has to offer, grace, mercy, and peace from God himself and from Christ Jesus. It's the ultimate blessing, unmerited favor, release from deserved guilt and serenity in all things. And these come from God himself, the God, the only God, the sovereign God of all creation, who is described and labeled Father here by Paul. God the Father, the generator, the source of all life, the first person of the triune Godhead. And this grace, mercy, and peace also comes from Christ Jesus our Lord. God the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one the Lord of those whom he has redeemed by his blood. So yeah, give me that grace, mercy, and peace too, if you would please God. Paul wishes it for Timothy, his beloved child, because, Paul knows, Timothy is going to need them. Just as Paul himself has needed them all through his apostleship. Verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and night and day. So Paul begins kind of the body of the letter with a shot of encouragement by telling Timothy that he's constantly praying for Timothy. If you take out that middle clause, which we'll look at in a minute, which is as my ancestors with a clear conscience, you take that out. He says he thanks God as he remembers Timothy constantly in his prayers night and day. I pray for you all the time, Timothy. And when I do pray for you, I thank God for you. What a lovely thing to say. What if we encouraged each other that way? I thank God for you. I was praying the other day, and I thank God for you by name. If somebody walked up to me and said, Jason, I was thanking God for you the other day. Man, that's, oh, wow. The fact that that I would even come to their mind is nice. The fact that they would go to God with my name in their heart and mind is some, And then to look at God in the face and say, God, I thank you for this person. Man, that's pretty cool. I figure that Paul in prison had lots of time on his hands and I'm sure he used it to pray and I'm sure he prayed a lot. And in all this praying constantly, day and night, Timothy keeps coming back to his mind. Timothy keeps coming up. And when Timothy comes up in his conversation with God, Paul says, God, thank you for Timothy. Oh, for a church full of people who thank God for each other. Individually. I do thank God for Providence Bible Church. But what if I was thankful to God with your names in my head and in my heart all the time, day and night. What a beautiful thing that is. Paul feels and does this for Timothy. I'm sure that encouraged Timothy. Now back to that middle clause. Paul refers to God and he says, He is the God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. Now what's that all about? So Paul, saying he serves God, that's easy, that's pretty... Simple. He spent 30 ish years at this point from his conversion to this point of his life preaching, teaching, traveling, taking beatings. I mean, just name it. Whatever it took to carry the gospel of Jesus to the uttermost parts of the earth. So, yeah, God, whom I serve. But he has two additions to how he has served God. He served God as his ancestors did, with a clear conscience. Okay? I just find this interesting. Who were Paul's ancestors? Well, he lays out his Jewish heritage clearly in different writings. Um, so his ancestors were descendants of Abraham. And if you read the Old Testament, which hopefully you're reading with us through the Old Testament right now, and we're in First Samuel. But as you read through the Old Testament, it gives a long history of these Jewish people, these Hebrews, showing the work of God in and through them. And of course instances of disobedience and apostasy too, but Paul refers to his Jewish roots and refers to his service as being like those Hebrews whom God worked through to advance his kingdom and God's plan all throughout history. And then Paul throws in that he serves God with a clear conscience. So I serve God like my ancestors did, folks like Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah But he also throws in that he serves God with a clear conscience. Well, I hope so. Why why would he say this? Well, keep in mind where he's writing from. He's in prison. He's in a Roman hole in the ground. And what do you think is being said about Paul by his opponents in the midst of all this? You think his opponents are saying, oh, poor Paul, he's in jail unjustly. No, they're saying that dirty, rotten scoundrel deserves to have his head cut off. Because he teaches mistruths about God. He doesn't teach the true way to God. And I bet he's filling his pockets in all these places that he's going around. He's a scoundrel and he's ugly. I don't know that they said that, but I'm sure there were plenty of notorious rumors swirling about Paul sitting in this notorious prison with all these other notorious criminals. And I think in his effort to encourage Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, I've served God my whole adult life sincerely, wholeheartedly, passionately, and all these people smearing me are just noisemakers. Don't give ear or heart to what they say. Remember he had said, don't receive an accusation against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses. Timothy, as you hear all these things, and you're going to hear a ton of things, because I'm asking you to come here, and there's all kinds of things being said about me here too. Don't believe them. I have served God with a clear conscience. I've defrauded no one. I've taken no one's gold. I've given my life. I've worked with my own hands to support myself. And I've preached the gospel free of charge every time I had a chance. That's what he says in his other letters. So don't give ear or heart to what these rumors are swirling around saying about me. Paul was not a notorious criminal. He was not justly jailed for his criminal escapades. And I'm sure people were saying that he was. But no, he says he was God's servant, suffering at the hands of unjust men just like his Lord had, and he has no regrets or shame in any of it. His conscience is clear. What a statement to make at the end of your life, by the way. Know that, Timothy. Verse 4. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. That phew, That's beautiful. So Paul's been praying about Timothy, thanking God for Timothy constantly. And here we see that as he prays and thinks about Timothy, he remembers Timothy's tears. Now we had said in our time in 1 Timothy that Timothy had a timid streak, that he had frequent ailments, and that he was young. So it would seem that Timothy had issues that made this work tough for him. Maybe Timothy was an introvert. Oh! <laughs> Oh, no. Public ministry, that involves people. Yes, yes, it does. Whatever the issue was, we don't have specific texts that portray Timothy as crying, but here we know that he had shed some tears in Paul's presence at least at one point, and I would guess it was more than just one time. Is Paul referencing Timothy crying at their parting? When Paul got sent off to this notorious prison, can you just imagine Timothy standing there, tears running down his face as they take his brother, his disciple away from him? And Paul's thinking about those tears and the connection that belongs there. It's like the tears add to the longing. Like a mom longing to see her kid who was crying when she left him at summer camp. I don't know anything about that, by the way. My mom's like, whatever, I'm a loser. <laughs> There's a compassion, a desire that is compounded by those tears. And Paul expects that seeing Timothy again will lead to him, to Paul, being filled with joy. I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Again, you see the strong emotional attachment between these two men of God. Just a sidebar. Men, let's feel our emotions. Men, let's show our emotions, especially to each other. I think there's something to that. That's not in the text. That's free material there. Because it's beautiful. It's powerful. And Paul continues to reminisce as we look at verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well as Paul looks back as he remembers thinks about and prays and thanks God for Timothy he is also reminded of Timothy's sincere faith and I love that word sincere it's the Greek word anupokritos and it means without hypocrisy literally unskilled in the art of acting actors were hypocrites hypocrites we would say Playing a part. Timothy's faith is unskilled in the art of acting. It's genuine. It's real. It's sincere. And it turns out that he comes by this sincere faith, honestly. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Timothy's a third generation faith bearer at least. His grandmother Lois was a believer. She would have been a devout Jewish lady. As we know that while Timothy's dad was a Greek, his mom's side was Jewish. And those Jewish roots seen in Lois were then passed to her daughter, Timothy's mom, Eunice. And then Eunice passed those beliefs and that faith, and I'm sure um, Lois and Eunice both were passing that down, to Timothy. And when Paul blows through town on his first missionary journey, he preaches the gospel which showed that Jesus, the Nazarene rabbi, was indeed the Messiah the Jews had been longing for over the past few millennia. And as it would seem, Lois, Eunice, and Timothy all believe that gospel and trust Jesus to save them and now are of the way. They're in the Christian faith. And Paul has seen the fruit of the faithful seeds sown by Eunice and Lois And those sown by his own ministry as the faith of Timothy is living and active. With Paul saying that he is sure that that same faith dwells, lives in Timothy as well. What a lovely compliment this must have been to Timothy and to his mom and his grandma. As Paul speaks so highly of his faith and the faith of these two women. There is something beautiful and powerful about a faith that is passed down from generation to generation to generation and on and on and on. I praise God. I see it on both sides of my family. My mom and her mom I can trace back to. My dad, his mom, and his mom's mom, as far as I know, I can remember these old wrinkled ladies reading their Bibles, talking about Jesus. And I didn't engage it well when I was young. And I regret that. But I remember sitting with my great-grandmother after mowing her grass as she's spitting her granny snuff into her spitting (laughs) tube. She was something else, y'all. We called her Masty. I don't know where that came from. I don't think anybody in the world has ever called their great-grandmother Masty, except my family. Sounds like I'm Snee Masty. Masty girls or something. But I can remember talking about Jesus. And putting the 357 under the couch as she was spitting her spit. I'm I'm serious. She was something else, y'all. She was something else. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's easy to look at the Old Testament and see the clear direction of God for families to be faith factories. Parents passing down the faithful teaching to their kids. When they rise up, when they sit down, when they go along the way, when they're at dinner. Everything they do being about discipleship and those parents passing down that faithful teaching to their kids who will continue the trend ad infinitum. Please listen to me, young folk here, children that are still in your parents' house. If your family is walking in faith and calling on you to do the same and are leading you in that direction, you are blessed far beyond what you know and understand right now. Intergenerational discipleship is God's design. It's God's plan for the family. Father, you are the God figure in your home. Mom, he's just, y'all are just Swiss Army knives. Y'all just, y'all got everything going on. Also a God figure to these children. And... If you are multiple generations in, get down on your knees and thank God for that. If you're a first-generation believer not coming from a family of faith, thank God for the chance to start the process with your generation. Paul sees it in Timothy and is clearly encouraging Timothy with the observation and mentioning of it, saying, Timothy, remember, this is three generations at least old in your family. Remember that. But in these five verses and all that we've seen so far We haven't really seen a so what So it's all kinds of encouragement I remember your tears, I remember your faith I remember, I remember Well we're about to get that so what kind of statement here in verse 6 For this reason I remind you to fan into flame The gift of God Which is in you through the laying on of my hands There it is For this reason That's a purpose statement Now, what reason is Paul referencing here? What is this reason? Well, Paul spent this first part of the letter, the previous five verses, to Timothy giving encouragement, mostly in the realm of verifying Timothy's faith. Verifying Timothy's status as a believer and a follower of Jesus. I thank God for you, Timothy. I remember your tears, your emotional engagement. I'm reminded of your sincere faith and that of your mother and your grandmother. And I'm sure that faith is dwelling in you as well. So, for this reason, then what? Since you are a true believer and a fellow laborer with me, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. And this is a massively huge command in light of the time, the situation, and the circumstances of Paul's writing. Paul is in a hole in the ground in Rome, chained to either a pole or the wall or the floor or some other smelly guy. And he's about to be gone. And not like sent somewhere, he's going to be dead. And Paul has been the face of the gospel movement in those early stages for it. But what's going to happen when Paul's gone? Does the faith die with Paul? Who will carry the torch? Well, Paul is charging Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. Stoke the fire in you, Timothy. That faith that was given to you and passed down through generations into your life. You're going to be called upon, Timothy, to carry more of the burden, more of the load. As I leave, Paul says... And the emotions, the tears, the timidity, the frequent stomach ailments, the youth, all those things that have hindered you in the past, you're going to have to press on through them in order to do what you're called to do. And seeing my end, seeing my chains and my death sentence, Paul says, maybe being there when they cut Paul's head off. I don't know. going through all of that and all that's hindered you in the past, may make you want to fade into the background. But Paul says, no, Timothy, just the opposite. Let's add some gasoline to this fire. Let's ratchet things up to five alarm in your life. Fan into flame the gift of God. Take this gift, this faith, and stoke it up. To fan into flame is the Greek word, and adzo poreo. It actually has pyro in there, but it's pronounced poor here. And it's translated as stir up, to kindle up, to inflame one's mind, to strengthen, to be zealous. Get it going, Timothy. I want to see it. Burn and burn and burn and burn and higher and hotter. I want you to stoke up this flame, Timothy. I want you to do it. Get the gas, work the bellows, throw on some wood and get that joker roaring in your life, Timothy. Timothy. Timothy, remember all that you've seen, all that you've done, all that God has done for you, your mom, your granny, all of it. And use that to get motivated, to use this gift of faith, this gift of regeneration, this gift of the person of God himself within you and appropriate it all into action. Now is your time, Timothy. I need you to step up, Timothy. I need you to take the gospel baton and run for your life and for the lives of all of God's elect. And Paul says he knows that gift of God is there in Timothy's life because he himself, Paul himself, laid his hands on Timothy and prayed that God would do what only God could do in and through this timid young man. He says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now Paul's not inferring that it was him or his hands or his prayer that conveyed this gift of God's life and faith in it, as if it hadn't been there before, as if it wasn't the very work of God. No, it's the apostolic commissioning, the transferal of authority to take these words, these teachings, and proclaim them as they are the very words of God. Commentators Marshall and Towner explain it this way, quote, Nevertheless, the phrase does not mean that it was the act of laying on of hands which conveyed the spirit possessed by Paul to Timothy, nor does it imply that Timothy did not already possess the spirit. The force is that the charisma for ministry, one of the specific charismata associated with the spirit, was conveyed to Timothy by God as the necessary accompaniment to the laying on of hands which was conveyed, which conveyed Paul's authority to him. And they reference Numbers 27 when they talk about the laying on of hands and the transfer of authority from Moses to others. End of quote. Timothy, Paul says, You were hand-picked, directly commissioned to carry this message by God, and that was shown by my prayer and transferal of the authority that I carry as an apostle into your life. Stir it up, Timothy! Take that fire from God in you and work it. Feed it and fan it until it's a holy inferno. Moving and motivating you for this mighty work of ministry. The door is open to you now, Timothy. Blow through it with holy fire. And that would make me want to run through a wall. But Paul's not done yet. He's got a final verse today. Verse 7. 4. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So this verse starts with a four as well, right? Which ties it back into the previous verse. So let's read these two verses together. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Listen, if you don't wrestle with some of Paul's sentences, you're not reading close enough. What is this for? what is this? How does this tie? What's he talking about? And he's got clauses in the middle of everything. You've got to kind of pull out and say, that's not talking about this. That's explaining this. So what's going on here? Let me try to confuse you as much as I can. You ready? So let's take out the clause that describes the gift's transferal, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That's back here in verse 6. We're going to take that out. So let's take that clause out and then read it like this. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God for God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Now, I'm not saying the clause doesn't matter. I'm saying it's describing something specifically that the for isn't there for. Right? <laughs> what? Okay. So this for is the purpose statement of why Timothy should do this thing related to the for this, for this reason, which was stated previously. So this sounds pretty mixed up. But think of it this way. Remember the faith you have, and so kindle up the gift that God gave because the gift of the Spirit doesn't breed fear. Okay? Remember your faith, kindle your gift, for God gave us a spirit. And the spirit that God has given is not a spirit or the spirit of fear. Some would say that Paul's saying this because Timothy was naturally a little fearful. But aren't we all? And the spirit of God, the spirit that God gives enables us to overcome our fears. Which puts the power and the work squarely in whose hands? It's in God's hands. As he works in and through us. And his spirit in us is a spirit of power and love and self control. That construction with three items and two ands connecting them is called a, called a polysyndeton. So what? Well, it's chosen to show emphasis on the words connected by the ands so that they're all equally emphasized. And there's several of these in the New Testament, probably the best-known ones in the Great Commission, when Jesus says to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not what he says. He says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. And so that and, and shows emphasis on all the things. None of this is by accident. It's all superintended by a holy God who knows grammar better than you do. (laughs) All are equally emphasized. Power and love and self-control. The spirit that God gives is a spirit of power and love and self-control. They're all equally emphasized. Not fear, but power. The Greek word is dunamis. The same power Jesus said the disciples would receive when the Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. But you shall receive power. It's strength. It's ability. Power for doing. And this Spirit is a Spirit of power and love. This word is agape. God love. Self-sacrificing love. Serving others as more important than myself kind of love. Power and love and self-control. This is moderation, calling to soundness, being able to say no to oneself. And we saw that a lot in Titus. And the Spirit of God given at your salvation, individual believer, that Spirit empowers His people to live lives that look like these three things. So stir up the gift, Timothy. You don't have to be afraid. You have the Spirit of God who is great in and through you. He is powerful. He is loving. He empowers us to be self-controlled. And this is great news for Timothy here and for all of us who will face fears as we seek to serve God and His people. That's just seven verses, y'all. I held up eight fingers. It's only seven (laughs) verses. These are a fantastic passage, and it sets the tone for the rest of the book, but we'll look at application today, and let me just like you've probably noticed this, but let me just explain application for a minute. I kind of shifted application it used to be and I felt so many times like I left something out in application, and so we've got five application points today, they are five f's. And this is really where I'm headed more toward. I'm trying to take out, what, is this, what are these verses telling us to do? Not to stick to a three formula, but I, I see five things at least in this passage that we need to f- focus on. Five Fs. Um, family, friend, fear, faith, and fire. You're like, man, I had a tough time with three. Give me a break, pal. Family, friend, fear, faith, fire. And again, we'll talk them individually as we go along too. The first one's family. In this passage, and I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. If you are in a family that is nurturing you in the good doctrine of the Bible, you are fortunate indeed. We as families are to disciple one another. We are to live so as to make our families the primary means and places of making disciples. The home is the primary place of discipleship. Well, I bring them to church for that? No. You bring them to church to help you in your process of discipling your kids and discipling each other, husbands and wives. And kids, guess what? You're discipling your parents too in a way. Trust me, you are designed to be my undoing. And you're undoing me well, thank you very much. (laughs) And this is not just teaching and Bible studies. Heaven forbid that that's all this is talking about. The sincere faith that lived in Lois and Eunice was not just sitting down at the table and reading the Bible. Timothy saw... True faith in action through his grandmother and through his mother in their everyday lives. In the nurturing, in the caring, in the giving, in the serving, in the meals, in the dishes, in the laundry, in the going to work and providing. It's all in there. It's all part of your discipleship. But be intentional about it. God will use it and there will be some stuff that spills over whether you try to or not. But imagine if you did it on purpose. I walked into the office the other day at Life Strategies and poor girl at the front desk said, Oh, you scared me. I said, What if I tried? She's like, Oh, that's funny. <laughs> You're discipling your family whether you mean to or not, but what have you tried? And that convicts me. I'm a preacher, right? Surely my family's being discipled, are they? Am I being intentional and purposeful to make sure that they are being discipled individually and corporately? I don't know. What if we did? What, well, what if we tried? What if we did it on purpose? I promise you God will bless it. God will show up and do things that you had no idea he was able to do. Exceeding abundantly above anything that you could think or imagine. And that's just your family in your home. We're not even talking about our faith family. This is a big part of it too. Husbands, wives, moms, dads, kids. That's where discipleship is to happen primarily in your life. And again, I would say to husbands and dads, step the heck up. It doesn't have to be Bible studies. That'd be great. But live on purpose in such a way as to transfer your faith into your wife's life, into your kids' lives. Let the name of Jesus be on your lips consistently. And ask the Spirit of God to work in and through you to disciple your family. And again, moms, you're doing it. Wow, you're doing it. (laughs) Be intentional about it. I'll leave that there. So that's family. Number two, friend. I think if you just went with friend and thought about the passage, you'd probably say, well, this is about Paul and Timothy's friendship. But it's not. That's not what this application point's about. I reach back to Herb Hodges. To ask me about the fox later. And by the way, if you don't know what the fox is for. But it's, 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 um, um, it reminds me of Herb Hodges on purpose. And he called the Holy Spirit our stay within friend. And that's what this application is about. God has given us His Holy Spirit as our stay within friend. And we said last week and we've said bunches of times throughout our time together one God, three persons. The Holy Spirit of God is very God of very God. And God the Father is through the obedience of God the Son, poured out God the Spirit into the lives of every believer of Jesus Christ. If you have trusted Christ to be your Savior, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. And he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You say, I don't think I can do this. Good! Because God can. And He's given His Holy Spirit as your friend who is constantly with you, who is constantly shaping you, convicting you, reminding you of Jesus, helping you understand the things that Jesus said, showing that the omnipotent presence of God is with us, in us, and for us. That changes everything! Literally. We, we sing the song uh, for this and for that and for this and for that. I depend on you. Lord, teach me to abide. Jesus said, abide in me as I abide in you. For my waking breath. For my sleep. When I pass through death, all of it, I depend on you. A constant reliance and calling out, God, be God through me. And that's what the Holy Spirit is there for. That's who He is. He is the active part of the Godhead in your life, in your life, in your hands, in your mouth, in your eyes, your ears, your knees. The omnipotent power of God is with us, in us, and for us. And greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. You're like, yeah, but what's the application of that? That's the question you should be asking. Because that's information, and it's good information. So what the heck do I do with it? I was about to say something I should not say. Thank you, Lord. Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's your application point for friend. Friend, fill me. Fill me to overflowing. Run out all the junk that's in me. Help me to pour out all the junk that's in me so that I can be filled up with you. And the literal rendering of that is be being filled with the Spirit. A constant thing. You're going to Either grieve or give the Spirit away with what you do. So he's constantly coming in and going out, coming in and going out. Either grieving him through sin or giving him away through faithful action. God, help me to be being filled. Help me to stay beneath the waterfall of your Holy Spirit so that everything that comes in goes out the way it's supposed to be. And listen, you can't be filled with the Spirit if you're filled with all the junk that's out there. Or if you're lingering on all the junk that's in here. Clean me out, holy friend. And fill me up with you that you might empty me and fill me up again. Somebody write that down. That was really good. (laughs) Be being filled with the Spirit. That's the application point for friend. Family, friend, fear. Anybody struggle with fear? Fear. I'm not talking about spiders or snakes. You should be afraid of those things. (laughs) They're ghastly. But I know that fear is a common and sometimes pervasive enemy of those who follow Jesus. And what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of being misunderstood? Afraid that somebody won't like you as much if you speak the truth? Are you afraid that if you try to preach the gospel and mess it up that You're going to send somebody to hell? Are you afraid that your job's going to end? Are you afraid that you won't have enough food today? Are you worried you're going to go bald? Don't sweat that. That ain't bad. What are you afraid of? And we're all afraid of so many things, aren't we? But God has not given us a spirit of fear. And I used to hear that verse and it used to condemn me. Well, then I must not be very spiritual because I'm afraid of everything. And I think fear mostly lives in our lives in a little question, a little phrase. And that phrase is, what if? What if I mess things up? What if so-and-so is lying to me? What if, what if, what if, what if? Let me ask, let me have you replace that what if question with a different what if question. What if what God says is true? What if he really has given you a spirit Power and love and self-control. What if? What if he really is omnipotent in and through you? What if? That might do something with your fear. Just might. Hundreds of times in the Bible, God says, fear not. Our stay within friend does not operate in fear. This is more like him. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I'm the one who helps you. You don't have to be afraid. I am here with you. I am for you. What if that's true? What if that's true? That's how you vanquish fear. Replace your what if this happens with what if God's telling the truth to me? What if he really is holding my right hand? What if he really is the one who helps me? That's how you deal with fear. Family, friend, fear, faith. That's really the remedy to fear. That's the antidote. Faith is a gift from God. That saving faith God gave you as a gift. But that faith is based on facts. Things that have happened in the past. Jesus Christ really did die for our sins. Jesus Christ really was risen from the grave. And I think one of the best ways to exercise our faith is just remember... Remember where you've come from. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has said. Read what God has done all throughout history and remember it and take that faith and watch it grow. And what's the primary way that we grow our faith? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You want faith? Read your Bible. It's not a magic formula, it's just how he operates. When you see who God is and what God's done throughout the ages, that will help your faith, which will in turn squash your fear. And that faith has to be exercised. Which brings us to number five. Fire. Family, friend, fear, faith, fire. Let me ask you a question directly. As we finish up, what are you doing, Christian, in your life to fan the flame that God has planted in your life by giving you his Holy Spirit, by saving you? What are you doing to intentionally stoke up past that fire to somebody else? What are you doing to fan the flame into a roaring fire in your life? It's not going to happen by accident. An untended fire goes out. And the devil's really good at spreading the embers so that they're not touching each other. Grab it all together there. Remember, engage your faith. Read the Bible. See the work of God in your life and in the lives of others. Engage the church. Engage the Bible. Engage good godly music. Engage meditation, memorization. Do good deeds. Those are the things that fan the fire in your life. And it's a conscious decision that is enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit Himself. And it's not going to happen by accident. Timothy, fan the flame. Jason, fan the flame. Let me finish with this passage in Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. We mentioned part of it when we were talking about being filled with the Spirit. But you want to know what it looks like to fan the fire? To stoke it up? Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish... But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Addressing one another in hymns and hymns and hymns. I'm sorry, I read that wrong. No, I didn't. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And watch this, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You want a formula for how to fan the flame in your life? That's it. Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. Look at how you walk. Use your time well. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Address one another. When you're talking to each other, talk about the psalms, the hymns, the spiritual songs that you've been singing all week. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Always giving thanks for everything. To God the Father and then submit to one another. There is no spiritual fire stoking apart from the church as we submit one to another. And do these things in the power of the Spirit, our stay within friend, so that he might get glory. I encourage you, I urge you, I exhort you, church, individually and corporately, fan the flame. Stoke the fire. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need encouragement. We need strength. We need the power that you provide in our lives. God, help us to not expect it to happen accidentally. May we understand that it is our job to carry in this generation what you've given us to the next generation so that they might give it to the next generation until we see you face to face. And it is not going to happen by accident. God, it's going to happen as we remember who you are and what you've done and as we work together to fan this flame into a raging inferno that engulfs the entire world to the ends of the earth until the end of time. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be those people with the power that you provide. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. (coughs) May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.